0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the
1: Post's newsroom to life on stage. The 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is one of the country's deadliest episodes of racial violence. Historians believe as many as 300 black people were killed and 10,000 were made homeless after a white mob descended on a thriving black business district. Mary Elliott and Paul Gardello, curators from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Join Washington Post Live to discuss the century-old massacre and its enduring impact. Let's listen.
0: Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tracy Jan, race and economics reporter at the Washington Post. We're speaking today with scholars about the 1921 Tulsa massacre as the city marks 100 years after the attack on a prosperous black neighborhood by a white mob. We are joined by Paul Gardulo and Mary Elliott from the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, both of whom I've had the pleasure of speaking with during my reporting on Tulsa and reparations. Thank you both for being with us today for this important conversation.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Tracy.
0: Mary, let's start with you. Tell us briefly about the Black community of Greenwood and what it represented in Tulsa and the United States prior to the 1921 massacre.
1: The Black community in Greenwood represents the fulfillment of dreams, dreams of African-Americans who looked at Indian territory during the period of the land rush to, um, to see opportunity, Um, as a frontier for freedom. They saw that space escaping from places where they had faced violence and having to serve as sharecroppers. And they saw Indian territory, which ultimately became Oklahoma in 1907, as a space to fulfill dreams of raising families, building communities, building institutions, businesses, and becoming self-sustaining and um, really fulfilling what they saw as their opportunity to be US citizens or to live out their dreams.
0: A frontier for opportunity. Mary, you have a personal connection to Tulsa. Your uncle TJ was a prominent businessman who knew Booker T. Washington well. He owned a clothing store that newspapers described as being outfitted with marble floors
1: and chandeliers. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and the family business? Thank you. Well, my Uncle TJ, also known as Tali Julius Elliott, was um, a pioneer in the Indian Territory for African Americans establishing businesses. He was on the executive committee of the National Negro Business League, and he was the head of the Oklahoma State Negro Business League. So he knew all of the businessmen and women in the state, um, African American businessmen and women. He had eight siblings, um, the majority of which all had their own businesses as well. But T.J. was really significant in that he spearheaded creating this um, umbrella of businesses, including office um, buildings, a hotel, a theater, a bank. They had 300 acres of land and a department store. The first one in Muskogee, the second one he opened in Tulsa. And by the time of the Tulsa massacre, the store was called Elliott and Hooker clothing store. And he was in business in that site with S.D. Hooker, who's actually the father of Olivia Hooker, one of the survivors that you showed in the um, image. So T.J. Elliott was very much involved with the business around the state Um, and known as the merchant prince. He had the exclusive rights to sell sets and hats in that part of the state. So his clientele was black, white, and Native American.
0: That's right. We will talk more about him in a few minutes. Paul, you curated the museum's Power of Place exhibit that contains objects and archives of the Tulsa massacre and depicts the resilience of the Greenwood community. The museum's work is an important part of filling the silence that has surrounded the massacre for too long. Give us a brief overview of the chain of events that led a white mob to destroy Greenwood's businesses, homes, and community.
2: Thanks, Tracy. The chain of events that led to this massacre takes place along, I think, two timelines that you can look at. One is this longer timeline of racial violence that was being perpetrated against African-American communities, much like the communities in Oklahoma that Mary has described. That's really been taking place systematically since the end of the Civil War not just in the American South, in places like Memphis and Louisiana, but also throughout the nation and increasingly so into the 20th century. In fact, the Red Summer, as it's known, of 1919 saw racial massacres, not nearly of the scale that we're talking about here, but still significant events of mass racial violence in cities like Washington, D.C., in Wilmington, Delaware, in Chicago, Illinois, and Bronzeville, in Elaine, Arkansas, for instance. And so there is this ongoing drumbeat of violence that is accompanying the fast-cementing systematic institution of white supremacy. There's a shorter timeline. So that is what is happening nationally over the course of decades. But what's happening in the course of this vibrant community as Mary describes of Greenwood, which is segregated, which is wealthy, is this increasing feeling of resentment on the part of white Tulsans who are also new immigrant, newly immigrating to Tulsa. And what what happens is a scenario that's almost a pretext for the violence that ensues, which is that a young black man who is working as a shoe shiner in a in a white building in downtown Tulsa has to use the restroom he moves it, he goes to the restroom in the only public space for african american men to use he goes onto the elevator and something happens perhaps he trips he he encounters the elevator operator and she shouts that is determined as many interactions interracial between African-American men and white women as an assault, a perhaps attempted rape. And again, this is an account that is not, uh, that is recanted later by the young woman. It's a mythology that is born from cultural products that are circulating and instances of violence that are circulating around the nation. But what it, what it provides the community is an excuse, an excuse to imprison this young black man named Dick Rowland, an excuse for when African-American men assembled to protect him and to protect their, their community to unleash what you had said is one of the m- most deadly massacres in American history.
0: Thank unleash-
2: you. On that neighborhood.
0: Thank you, Paul, for that very important national context. Um, As we see, the false accusation of assault was also the pretext of many other massacres that occurred around the country. Mary, you have an aunt who survived the Tulsa massacre. Can you share her story with us and when you first learned about
1: it? Thank you, Um, definitely. I have an aunt, her name was Sonoria Johnson. Her maiden name is McGowan. And she was 12 years old at the time of the massacre. And she and her family actually were um, forced to the internment camps at the state fairgrounds. It was a white woman who employed her mother who went to the fairgrounds and um, was able to get them removed from the fairgrounds. And from there, the family left and went to Oklahoma City. And then she ultimately met my Uncle Bill. They married and Aunt Nora went on to do tremendous things. She was a social worker, and educator, but Very, very importantly, she was the first executive director of the Washington Bureau of the National Urban League, working under the leadership of both Whitney Young and eventually under the leadership of Vernon Jordan. And she was part of the team that helped to craft the civil rights laws along with Martin Luther King, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Dorothy Height. I love getting to know
0: about her story and your family history during our previous conversations. And I'm glad the world is getting to know it now. Paul, in his firsthand account of the massacre, attorney Buck Franklin, the father of historian John Hope Franklin, wrote about his escape. He could not help but wonder at the time whether the city was in conspiracy with the mob. Why did the local police and National Guard join the mob, and how and why were planes used in the destruction?
2: Yeah, what you have experienced across these two days, and frankly, for the ensuing Period is a is a pretext for the occupation, the destruction, and the and the devastation of this black community. And so, when white mobs invaded, let's put it frankly, they invaded um, Greenwood, setting fire and looting to looting the neighborhood. The city deputized officially deputized. Members of that mob en masse to quote unquote quell any riotous activity by African Americans who were in fact protecting their homes, their hearts, their families, and so the the white mobs were deputized and given ammunition to carry out their act that's what's happening here in the immediate aftermath or even as the riot the massacre is Quieting, so to speak, in the days following June first, the the Red Cross is kept from entering to provide essential, immediate emergency relief efforts. They're prevented from doing so by the city government, right? So, what about it, there the airplanes is the, that were used? This, the airplanes were in use during the during the massacre. Uh, Buck Franklin testifies in his accounts to airplanes. And he's not the only one. Multiple witnesses and survivors talk about, and they've documented seven privately owned airplanes who are surveying and probably feeding information to people who are conducting violence, but they're also dropping incendiary devices, what they call turpentine bombs out of the plains. And so Buck Franklin talks about buildings burning from the top down. Even Americans as people being are trying bombed. to yes. Yes.
0: Paul, he talked about the lot can you talk about the loss of life and livelihoods and in the immediate aftermath and the days and weeks following the imprisonment of black Tulsans who survived
2: Yeah, it's really important, Tracy, to put this in scale. We're talking about over a thousand homes and businesses being raised, burnt, leveled. We're talking about hundreds of people being murdered, right? We'll never know exactly how many people. Um, there's uh, There's ongoing searches, archaeological searches for mass graves today. So we're talking about an immense amount of property and in the, in the time it was estimated as $1.5 million worth of property. But as Dr. Hooker pointed out in her testimony that we heard right at the top, it is more than just a neighborhood destroyed or businesses destroyed. It is the ongoing trauma that this event caused for people. That not just rebuilding from this event, but the systematic obstacles that were put in place by the city, by the state, to prevent people from rebuilding, to prevent people from putting their lives fully together. And what we're right. gonna hear, I think, and should hear in a minute, is the way people did it despite despite these obstacles. Right. And that's one of the biggest stories, I think, that's needed to be told in the biggest silences
0: the city they passed laws to prevent and make it more expensive and near impossible to rebuild and black they attorneys to. right band together to fight that they fought those laws mary your relatives also own businesses and land in nearby muskogee how were they impacted by the massacre and how did they rebuild afterwards
1: well i'm really glad you asked that question um, one of the things that's really powerful is a cousin of mine her her family on the other side of the family owned Ragsdale Funeral Homes, And they had a business in Tulsa, but they also had the business in Muskogee. It was a chain. And one of the things that happened to Paul's point about the countless number of people who were killed is that there were bodies that floated down the Arkansas River. And local residents ran to her, her great-grandfather and said, you have to come to the river because we have to get these bodies out of the river. It was that extensive. It was that extensive. And how they rebuilt was, you know, you have to keep in mind, there's this network. So when I talk about the National Negro Business League, it's because there are these black networks that were a source for survival, whether it was a social network, whether it was a civic network or a business network. In this case, it's the National Negro Business League. And so all these men and women pulling together their resources to help rebuild. Um, I think it was only four years after the massacre occurred that um, they held the annual meeting for the National Negro Business League in Tulsa. Now, what does that mean? That means that all that money that would be spent for an annual meeting would be spent amongst businesses in the area that had been rebuilt. So it's right. very important to note the the support of the larger black community to help rebuild TulSA.
0: Mary, why were people detained afterwards? What was the purpose of holding black residents prisoners? And how were
1: they released? <laughs> well, my notion of them holding black prisoners is they're they're it's a land grab. It's a control issue. And I have to say this, Tracy, because I don't hear enough people talk about this. This was a complete gaslighting. You have people who built homes, businesses, pools, churches. They built communities. And then afterwards, these people are stripped of everything. They're forced into subservient positions. And then the new narrative, um, which really is kind of like a renewed narrative, is they don't appreciate education. They don't have a sense of faith. They don't understand community. They don't like a beautiful community to live in. They don't have entrepreneurial spirit and they don't understand business. So they have to work under um, the intellectual white community members. And I think that's very important.
0: Right, and Mary, they weren't released until a white person came and vouched for them, right? Like as if they were the ones that were dangerous to the community. The truth of what happened in Tulsa was suppressed for decades until a special commission appointed by the Oklahoma legislature to investigate the massacre issued a 200-page report in 2001. And even then, it was not taught in American schools, let alone Oklahoma or Tulsa schools. Most Americans had never, ever heard of it until the HBO miniseries Watchmen. Briefly, when did you first learn about the Tulsa massacre? Paul, you can go first.
2: I first learned about the Tulsa Massacre in history class, when I was taking history as a college student. It's the first time that I'd ever heard about the Tulsa Race Massacre. It was called the Tulsa Race Riot at that time. Um, But when I came to work for the museum, as we began to talk about the, uh, the stories that we needed to tell, John Hope Franklin, who is himself an Oklahoman, a Tulsan, the son, the preeminent American historian, who's the son of Buck Colbert Franklin, sat me down and talked to me about the importance of telling this story in our museum through the use of artifacts when we could find them and the immense need of not just putting this story in the public's hands in terms of school curriculum, but the way in which these other incredibly valuable learning spaces, museums, educational spaces, where people of all backgrounds can come together needed to learn this story. And that's really where my true education began. Meeting people like my colleague, Mary, as well.
1: Mary, Mary, when did you first hear about this? Well, you know, um, we had family reunions every two years and we talked about the strength of the family in Oklahoma and Indian territory. Um, but we didn't talk about the Tulsa Massacre. And it wasn't until I would say I think it was the 1980s or 90s when um, the story came forward about Rosewood. And that's when I started to learn about the Tulsa Massacre. And the other thing is, I did not know that my Aunt Nora was a survivor until after she died. I read about it in her obituary. And what I I imagine is that the pain of having to recount those stories, it's like reliving it. Um, so I Part of what brought me to this museum was I wanted to know more. I I wanted to know more about um, my family, about um, African-American history and about these nuances and lived experiences that have for so long been pushed to the side or covered up. Right. In the museum
0: collection, there's actually a chair that was reportedly looted from a black church during the massacre. Paul, how do objects like this testify to memory and loss?
2: Well, I think this this is a great example of an object that not only testifies to memory and loss, but it also becomes an opening for us to talk about how we value history, how we talk about wealth, how we talk about what is lost not just lost from memory, but what was lost? What was the material effect of that loss? And how can we think about restoring that loss? How can we actively think and talk about repair? And so this chair, which, is, which was found in a consignment shop from one of, our, um, one of our friends in Tulsa, Vanessa Adams Harris, who is herself a playwright, who's written a play using the testimonies from survivors and witnesses to the race massacre, donated this chair to the museum. And I think it really becomes a way of talking about what we still have to understand about our past. I think it's also a tremendous window into this story of black churches and black spirituality, right? Mm -hmm both as the targets of racial violence, of which there were at least eight churches that were burned to the ground during the massacre, but also as sites of sanctuary, not just during that massacre, but in the relief efforts that Mary was talking about, the ways in which churches galvanized themselves with businesses to provide relief immediately, even before the Red Cross could come in. There were churches that were advertising sometimes through the black press nationally to help our brothers and sisters in greenwood recoup reclaim themselves piece their lives back together right. so this is paul, this is an example of an object that can do so so much work paul you
0: also found postcards some showing burning corpses why were the yeah. why were these postcards depicting such gruesome violence and why were they yeah what what was the point of yeah. these postcards
2: I, I think we have to understand a little bit of the nature of our history of racism in this country. Certainly during this time, there were hundreds of lynchings of African Americans, mostly men across the nation um, up through the 1920s and 1930s. Even today, the the US Senate is trying to pass a, an anti-lynching law. Um, we have to recognize that these kinds of acts of violence, whether they were on a mass scale or on an individual scale, were reinforced in culture through things like postcards that were circulated, that were celebrated by by people who were enacting and participating and witnessing these forms of violence. And that was their purpose. They were created as, I would call them, instruments of terror, right? To strike fear into people. Now, what is what is massively important about them is that over time, if treated carefully and with respect, those same instruments of terror can be used as evidence to for legal evidence, but also evidence of what happened so that we can look history squarely in the face with clear eyes. You
0: spoke about the role and importance of black churches in helping the community rebuild afterwards. Mary, I'd like to hear more about the importance of the black press. We know that the mob violence was incited by the white-owned Tulsa Tribune, which falsely reported that a black teen had sexually assaulted a white girl. What about the role of the black press in documenting the truth and what happened in
1: Tulsa and elsewhere? The Black press is extremely important um, because, as Paul mentioned at the time, the social climate at the time, the competing voices in the public arena, and you have um, racist commentary in a segregated um, nation um, placing African-Americans in second-class citizen positions. And so you have the Black press, like the Muskogee Cemetery, the Um, Muskogee Phoenix, the Tulsa Star um, newspapers and newspaper journal, news journalists like Ida B. Wells, who are, you know, fighting to um, push out the truth and tell the truth of the lived experiences of African-Americans, their accomplishments, and also the violence that they're facing at the time. So you can imagine seeing these voices in that arena. Um, The Tulsa Tribune countered with the um, language in the Black Dispatch, which was founded by Roscoe Dungee. And so Roscoe Dungee is writing only on June 12th about thousands of people leaving Tulsa. But you also have the Muskogee Cemetery, you have the Muskogee Phoenix, as was mentioned by John Hunk Franklin, where that's where he found out, his mother found out about the massacre actually unfolding. The other thing I think that's extremely important for people to understand is many of these newsmen and women were attorneys. So they understood um, the political and civic and social implications of all of this. And so it it was a form of educating the public as well. Right. The state appointed
0: commission on the massacre recommended in their 2001 report that reparations be paid for the lives and property lost. Their investigation of insurance claims and lawsuits filed Yielded a conservative estimate of just under two million in property loss, which is about 29 million in today's dollars. No black property owner was ever compensated. Instead, the Oklahoma legislature presented each survivor with a gold-plated medal. Mary, should Tulsa victims and descendants be compensated?
1: You know, um, I can only speak for myself. I think that. Um, the conversation about reparations is important because that's essentially what you're talking about and this is probably one of the best cases that as as Paul talked about the evidence is is very straightforward there you you see where people unapologetically documented the violence that they they meted out um the destruction that they they um did to this community and so My thinking is that I I have no idea where to start with reparations, but I I do know that the conversation needs to happen, and I think that it's imperative that we recognize that people were never made whole, and that is um, a legal term, to be made whole again, and that has yet to happen. To close,
0: are there other chapters of our history that you think we need to examine more closely as a country?
2: Paul, you can go first of course there are more chapters that we need to explore and I think this this very question that that you raised is is one of them and I'll just leave it with there because there are so much that we need to bring to light but a whole questions of, of reparations for instance we need to understand in a broader context there were reparations paid to two white Owners of businesses in the immediate aftermath of the Tulsa race massacre; those who were who who deputized members of the mob took ammunition from. Those people were quote unquote made whole, in in ter- in the legal terms. No one else has been made whole. So we need to understand that this that the conversations around repair is an unexplored topic. Repair beyond just money. But the topic of reparations itself is one that we need to understand in a bigger, broader context, because reparations have been compensation and reparations have been made to former enslavers, right? right. These two people who were former business owners. And I I think that if we're going to have a qualitative and important conversation about repair, we need to be thinking in these kinds of terms. And I'll leave it at that.
0: So reparations have been made to white business owners whose property was lost, as well as white enslavers whose property was "quote unquote" freed, but not to black people who were enslaved or black people whose lives, whose property were lost. Mary, right. uh, are those there are the other- facts on the
2: table? <laughs> yep.
0: Mary, are there other points of history that you feel need to be unearthed for our country to have an honest reckoning with um, the state of our country.
1: Um, yes, I. all of this is connected. None of this history can be viewed in a vacuum. And so I think particularly about law and how the law has shaped where we are in terms of looking at race and how it has um, impacted African-Americans. And, and what's important is to look at the not just the law on its face, but the intention behind the law, reading the record of the debates when laws are coming into formation, and also look at the impact of the laws. And I I think we need to do a better job of that because um, these these things have long-term effects. So um, I think that's very important. And the other thing I would say is yesterday we commemorated, we um, looked at Memorial Day, and Memorial Day is a day to reflect on those who were in the military and and died in war, and veterans, and I think about the black veterans who were essentially fighting a war on U.S. soil just to fight for their lives and for the lives of those who lived in the community. And um, I think it's imperative that we look at these different moments in history, and as the museum does, Um, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, to look at this history through the African American lens, so we have a more nuanced, powerful understanding of our American story to empower us, to empower us, and to reflect on this past. Those are powerful words.
0: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Mary and Paul, for speaking with me. Thank Thank you. Thank you,
2: Tracy. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Mary.
0: Thank you, Paul. And thank you for being with us today. Join my colleague, Jonathan Capehart, tomorrow at 2 p.m. for the next in our Race in America series. He interviews Citi's Chief Financial Officer, Mark Mason, one of the highest-ranking Black executives on Wall Street today. I am Tracy Jan, and thank you for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening.